podcast is brought to you by our longtime Patreon supporters like Greg Bench, Trey Whetstone, Amy Swan, and Joel Robertson, and new patrons like Andred, Carl Davis, and Nick Stubbs. Stick around for an extended shout-out at the end. Now on to the episode. Welcome to another episode of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty sidekick, Jackson the Sun. And if I was a Cenobite, I I think I would look exactly the same. I mean, I'm already pale. I think I'd just be wearing socks and sandals. Like, that's torture for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we are a spoiler podcast. We do spoil the movies we discuss. And today we are looking at Hellraiser from 1987. And to do this, we have with us not one, but two guests. First up, the horror historian, returning to the podcast and host of Screaming Through the Ages, Trey Whetstone. Welcome back, Trey. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jackson. Thanks for having me on. I think it's been about a a year or so, so I was um, excited to jump back on here, especially for this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to have you, man. And the podcast, you're just knocking it out of park, so keep it up. The problem that now you're doing all the kaiju movies is I saw all of those you know, that I have seen back when I was like six years old on <laughs> WAB out of Cleveland. So I haven't seen them since the late seventies. And, uh, but they used to play like one universal monster movie and then one Kaiju movie every Saturday afternoon on the station out of Cleveland with a uh, super host. Yeah. So, that was, that was kind of the same for me. I hadn't seen a lot of those since I was a kid. So it was like going back and revisiting them and yeah, it's been a good time. My favorite, my favorite, I was listening to your Kaiju, uh, first Kaiju episode. My favorite story you told is that your mom forcing you to go see Nut Professor 2 <laughs> instead of Godzilla 2000, which is uh, just, oh man, I mean, I can't blame her, but also, I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, I mean my grandpa, grandpa like, take he was ready. Just... He was ready. He didn't want to see that either, but. <laughs> uh, uh, I can beat you all. My, my older sister was also our de facto babysitter for my younger sister and I. I had to, I was forced to go see in theaters. Grease 2. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> exactly. The horror. The horror. It's like the end of Apocalypse Now. Um, and so we also have with us, and this man needs no introduction to any horror fan who's on social media or listens to everything from horror movie podcasts back in the day, etc. Mr. Willis Wheeler. Thank you, sir. Hey, peeps. What up? What up? It's been a while since I've been on somebody else's podcast, so yeah, I'm feeling good and feeling great. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah, I first discovered uh, Willis on HMP. I think it was the first time. And uh, uh, you were always a blast when you were on those episodes. And somebody has to keep Jay in check. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But so anyway, we like I said, we are talking about Hellraiser. The IMDb summary of Hellraiser reads, a woman discovers the newly resurrected, partially formed body of her brother-in-law. And my puppy's making noise in the background. He's wrestling with a toy. She starts killing for him to revitalize his body so he can escape the demonic beings that are pursuing him after he escaped their sadistic underworld. Eh, They don't really seem to be pursuing him to the end. I'm not, whatever. So, Willis, you first, when did you first see Hellraiser? I first seen Hellraiser back when I was in junior high school, Mm -hmm. when they used to play it on HBO. Because at one point, they would play part one and part two back-to-back with each other on, on Friday nights. I remember that. Yeah, they would do that. I remember that. So, uh, Trey, what about you? 
Yeah, I think I talked about before, Matt, this would have been one of my um, binges back in like probably 2012 or 2013 when I was trying to get mm -hmm. through and get through horror classics because I was a little late to the game. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And of course, three and four are your favorites, right? That's um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that to you. Um, I, we don't even need to bring those up. Jackson, what about you? When did you first see Hellraiser? You know, I was I was trying to think back and. Honestly, I think the first time I watched it all the way through was with Joe Bob. I think that was honestly mm -hmm. my first time watching it all the way through. But yeah, this is ever since then, this has been a, a, a favorite of mine. I mean, first of all, 1987 is one of the best years for cinema, in my yes. opinion. Like just the the greatest blockbusters, I think, of all time, but also a lot of great like art house stuff. And really, this is, you know, whatever you want to label this, this is an art house film, which is really funny um, to say. But but yeah, this yeah is, we'll talk about because it it's low budget. It's low budget. It's but it, and it's not big scale, but it's 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 really, I think, smarter than a lot of people give credit for. But uh, yeah, this has been a favorite of mine ever since I watched it for the first time. Of course, I was aware of, well, of Pinhead and of the box before then, but uh, I didn't really know what it was about. I mean, like I was aware of Michael Myers when I was like six, but I thought he had a chainsaw. So, you know, I didn't really, I, until I watched the movies later on, I didn't really put two and two together. But man, I'm so glad I got to see Hellraiser and, and uh, got to rewatch it now because uh, it's just, it's, it's such an interesting movie. It, it really is. And it, it's not schlock as a lot of people would have you believe. No, we'll get into it. I, I saw this on video for the first time. I had read about it, but growing up in Southern Ohio, uh, not close enough to Columbus or Cincinnati, um, we had one cinema, one drive-in, the one cinema had three theaters, and so it was never playing anywhere around here. I really wanted to see it. I'd read about it in Fangoria, so I rented it as soon as it dropped to video. And I will tell you that, I'll go ahead and say I've warmed up to this movie, but the, just, just, and don't come at me because I'm saying, but the first time I saw it, I was not impressed. It confused me. Like, I wondered, where is this thing set? It's like half the cast seems to be British. The other half seems to be American. Where, where are we? Well, and Matt, Matt, there's an interesting, and I'm sorry to interrupt you there. No, go ahead. But there was an interesting, so apparently this was originally um, in, to be set in, you know, Great Britain. Uh, but New World Pictures wanted this thing to be moved to America. So they actually went and redubbed some of the voices uh, to have to lose their British accent. <laughs> is that yeah, one to deal with with Frank is with brother Frank? Yeah, so that's yeah. probably where your confusion is because I was even confused this time again watching it. Yeah, and it's it like, doesn't help that Clyde Barker is British too. So it's, there's a lot of confusion. Yeah. And this family is so strange. Larry and and, and Kirsty and, and and Frank and and of course you know Julia's just evil. But I mean it's just. It, it just really confused me. And then I also, even though I always thought the Cenobites were, were cool, but I thought the rest of the uh, special effects were mediocre. Um, I didn't understand why anyone wanted to open that darn box. No, no, um, right? And yeah, why would anybody want to open that box? And so, you know, I, I kind of went through all that and I thought, I, you know, if I had rated this and like probably, I think I saw that it premiered in September of 87 in Great Britain. So I probably saw this in 88 on video sometime. I would probably give it like a five out of 10 back then because I was just confused. And it was also at the height of my like film snobbery because I was I decided I was going to be a film student and and reading all I could about film and watching all the great films. And I still loved horror films. I watched this. And I'm like, 
wait a minute, there's a there's a scene where a monster is running down a hallway and you can see the grips pushing it. I know, right? You can see them. I mean, it's just like they even try to like focus tighter to get them out. I mean, you can see their legs and everything. And I'm like, oh, what in the world? So I wasn't as big on this, but then it seemed like every party I went to, this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Willis. It's like every other Halloween party I would go to from like 1988 to like 1992, this movie was playing. You know, somebody was playing this movie. And so I was kind of forced to revisit it over and over again. So, you know, let's talk about the plot. I mean, essentially, <laughs> this is kind of a, I don't know what you gentlemen would call it. Is this, there's almost a subplot of a, like a weird twisted love story between Frank and Julia. Um, you know, Julia is married to Larry and I, they inherit, I guess, is it Larry's childhood home? Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. But, and I'm not sure I would have taken that inheritance. I think I would have sold it. That attic is a mess. Um, even without Frank's strewed everywhere. But so we get flashbacks of the affair between Frank and, and, and Julia. And apparently there were even deleted scenes of Frank spanking Julia. And But then Frank disappears. It turns out he opened the box. Chunks of his body are in the floorboard, you know, but apparently his soul is in, is in hell or wherever that place is. And Larry moves back in, bleeds on the floor. Frank comes back and Julia starts you know, killing off poor, unsuspecting bar patrons when, and then Kirsty discovers Frank and opens the box and makes a deal to help the Cenobites recapture Frank. I mean, that's about it, right? It's a brisk in like 92 minutes. You hit the nail on the coffin. You basically told the whole movie. Yeah, I mean, that, that is basically it, but I don't know. Let's talk about it. Trey, what did you, what do you think of the plot and the screenplay? Yeah, I mean, it's just like you and Willis were saying, it's very, it's pretty easy to grasp and understand, yeah. right? Until we get to the um, otherworldly interdimensional <laughs> kind of hellscape stuff, which a lot of that, to be fair, doesn't come into play until two. Um, I think the story is good enough to move the plot along and get to kind of what you want out of it. I don't know if there's, I want to say that I like the acting and the characters and stuff in it, mm -hmm. but I don't know if there's necessarily anything groundbreaking in the script or anything yeah. on that. It's just you're kind of there for the ride is how I've always seen it. Yeah. Willis, what about you? What do you, what do you think? Well, with the screenplay, it's simple enough for you to understand what's going on. It's not too convoluted. It's basically straight and to the point until you get almost to the very end of the movie with the certain scene at the end, which never made no sense to me. <laughs> if y'all know what I'm talking about, once we you, get there. Are you talking about, because we can spoil it, like when she closes the box, it's Pinhead seems to freak out, like, no, don't do that. But then one of the Cenobites is still there. There are still monsters around. Then you've got this homeless person. It, it's... It, it's really strange. The drag, yeah, the skeleton dragon at the end. That's, yeah, that's the thing I never figured out. Who was that supposed to be? Was that the devil or what? I know it was the um homeless guy, but he never really played into the movie. But maybe like two minutes of the movie, and that's it. That yeah. was the only thing I didn't really get about the movie. And we can talk about the special effects later, but that. That skeleton, Willis, I mean, it looks like, I mean, looks like something from uh, Army of Darkness, except they did that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not impressive. But Jackson, what do you think of the plot and the screenplay? 
Well, I think it's uh, look, I've read the short story. Um, it's not a one to one adaptation of the story. There are some differences, like namely the ending and some of the characters have different names. But I think it's so it's not a perfect adaptation, but it's a perfect adaptation of the feeling of of a Clive Barker short. I think only Barker himself could could adapt it that way. Like we immediately I mean, it's grime and filth and this deeply dysfunctional family. And a lot of it is is shown to us instead of told. I mean, just like with glances and little remarks from Kirsty, we get the entire dynamic of the family. And it's just, it's, yeah, I love it. I, it's very simple, like you said. I mean, uh, I think out of necessity. You can't, the budget of this movie did not dictate that it could do what the short story did, which was basically do what uh, part two did, the Hellbound Heart did, where it shows you hell. You know what I mean? Right. We, we see in the in the, uh, in the the book, Frank, you know, actually transported to hell or whatever the, the pocket dimension of the, of the Cenobites is. Um, but, you know, keeping it vague like this movie does out of necessity, I think, was a good move. I mean, it's very Lovecraftian, just like hinting at this larger world. Um, and I think, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of inferences you can make. It is really weird, that like weird uh, skeleton thing at the end. I think yeah. the, the implication is, is that that's the guy that sold Frank the book in the beginning that I mean, the box in the beginning. That this yeah. Is, it's but like, who is like, he? I don't know, but he's the yeah. he's the guy who guards the the puzzle box, gives it to people. They get sucked into the dimension, then he comes and cleans up after. I guess takes the the box and passes it along. I guess that's his job. Uh, like I yeah, like I said, it, it just kind of hints at things in this movie, which I think yeah. was a good move because as the movies go on, and I love Hellraiser too, but as the movies go on and we learn more and more about the Cenobites and see more and more, even as the budgets go up. You know, I really just think it loses a lot of the, the mystique um, and the, I don't know, the, the the charmingness of this first movie when we learn more. So I think it was a good move uh, staying kind of uh, um, ambiguous with this one. And uh, I'm kind of glad, honestly, like the, the hardest productions, like the ones with the most limited budgets, I think, turn out the best movies because they're really, you know, really pushing for this movie if they're if he's going to go ahead and make an adaptation with only a million dollars. Yeah, and I'm and and to be fair to Clive Barker, so we can just dovetail this into talking about Clive Barker um, as a director, as a writer, whatever we want to talk about. I have you know none of this in 1987 and and so forth. You know, if you're of a certain age, and I'm probably the oldest one here, but if you're of a certain age, you'll remember there was this day before the internet, and and basically anything that came out about a movie was really kind of polished by PR firms and that kind of stuff. You didn't know that, you know, behind closed doors, one of the reasons why he couldn't reshoot the scene with the key grips pushing the monster or he couldn't, you know, the, the you know, special effects were so bad, especially at the end, is, you know, originally they told Clive Barker he could write and he could direct, he could put his name above the title, and we're going to give you like a three, three and a half million dollar or more budget. And then he's like, great. And the poor guy went to the library to check out books on directing because he had no idea how to direct a movie. And he got to the library and all the books had been checked out. And <clears throat> so he was he had no idea what he was doing. And then they kept cutting stuff and including his budget. So it went from like three point five million to one million. And so and for a first time director, you know, working in London, especially it confined almost all of it to one house. I cut him some slack, and that's why I've kind of warmed up to this over the years. But, Trey, what do you think of Mr. Barker? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and I think I read a, like an anecdote of he didn't know the difference between from one lens to another. But no. uh, the crew he didn't know were the very... difference between like 10 millimeter. He said in yeah. 35 millimeter. Yeah. No idea. 
yeah. So it was like he said the crew was very much uh, understanding and kind of yeah. helped him out. But yeah, you're right about that budget. And Clive Barker as a whole, I've never read any of his stuff. Um, I do like you know some of his adaptations. I think I'm hit or miss on the film adaptations. Mm-hmm. But I would say for you know a guy who'd never directed or done anything like that. I yep. think this one turned out pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he directed stage plays, but that's very different. Yeah, you know, yeah. from from doing, especially a a horror movie. Uh, Willis, what do you think of Mister Barker? I think he's a genius in mm-hmm. what he does because it's weird and it's strange. But the only problem is a lot of his stuff doesn't translate well once it gets to the screen. Right. That's his. That's his only downfall. Actually, yeah. his comic book stuff, based on his work, is actually very well done. Because oh. you could do you could do anything with the printed screen more than you can do on the silver screen if you don't have enough money for the budget. Yeah, I've never seen any of this <clears throat> comic book stuff. I'd like to because I. I am a fan of the books. I've read the Books of Blood. I've read, it's been 25, 30 years ago, but I've read The Hellbound Heart. I really liked a book called The Damnation Game that he wrote. And I liked, like, I liked the director's cut of Nightbreed. I really liked uh, Lord of Illusions from 1995. I thought that was really good. I don't know if, you, have, what do you, what's your opinion on Nightbreed or Lord of Illusions if you've seen them, Willis? I've seen Nightbreed when it first came out. Yeah. Because HBO used to play that one to death too. Yep. It was okay. It's kind of strange. I still haven't seen the Cabal cut. Yeah. But they actually have an interesting comic book run of Hellraiser versus Nightbreed. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, Jackson, did you know any of that? I did not, but I got to look into that now. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it was under Marvel Comics Epic. Um, label that they had back in the day because those books were actually in soft cover books. They wasn't the regular comic books. They was a mm. little bit more premium um, format. The real thicker paper. Yeah. So that's the thing. Hellraiser went through and Nightbreed went through two different publishers. First it was under Marvel and then they have some stuff that came out a couple of years ago on the Boom Studio. I think they still had a license for a lot of Clive Barker's um, works right now. Yeah, I like I said, I saw a major leap. I, I didn't care for Nightbreed, the movie, the first time I saw it. But then when I saw the director's cut, I thought it was much better. I thought it, I can say it's at least a good film. And I love Cronenberg you know, as, the, as the serial murder. Um, but... Lord of Illusions, I think is, I personally think is underrated. I really like, I think there are parts of it are really, really good. And I thought that Clive Barker between that, about what is that, about an eight-year gap, really grew as a as a director, And, and in my opinion. Jackson, have you even seen any of those? Or I, I haven't seen them, no. Okay. I mean, Nightbreed, Nightbreed's definitely on my, my watch list, but uh, because of Cronenberg. But um, yeah, I think as far as like Clive Barker goes, 
he's a great idea man he's got a lot of great yep. intriguing ideas like like Candyman and uh and and hellraiser it's just mm-hmm. like stuff that that makes you want to see more but he kind of shoots himself in the foot also when it comes to adapting his work because it's so ambitious um occasionally i mean i guess Candyman is a little bit uh lower key it's a little bit lower stakes but um yeah especially with like a hellraiser you know the hellbound heart it's, it's really difficult for some of his works to be adapted i feel like the same is true with stephen king and i hate i know we're gonna have to bring him up at some point we're gonna have to bring up stephen king but um well stephen king is the guy kind of launched his career because you know he has that famous quote it's like stephen king in the 80s championed two things uh the evil dead and uh clive barker he gave that famous quote for clive barker's publisher to put on his books that i've seen the future of horror and it is clive barker yeah and thank god that was after his cujo writing days when he couldn't remember anything he was saying like i'm glad he can take, take credit for that quote um but uh yeah but he's such a great idea man and like uh, really cool worlds that he creates um, and characters and imagery. I think imagery is probably his strongest uh, strength. And that really helps when you're trying to do the art direction for a movie like this. Um, but uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, Nightbreed, like I said, is, is on my watch later. But, um, you know, there are so many great little ideas. I mean, just his shorts and like the Books of Blood or whatever. It's like there are so many things that could be made into cool short stories, but nobody's doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, Yeah, and you had uh, both mentioned the Books of Blood. Did any of you see the uh, from a couple years ago, that anthology Books of Blood that they did on Hulu, I believe? No, I missed not. that. Yeah, did it not. wasn't it wasn't anything spectacular. Um, it was kind of like this interconnected series of, um, you know, a few, I can't remember if there were two or three stories. It wasn't bad. I think I came like middle of the road on it. But um, there were some interesting ideas in there for sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, check that out. And I, I believe if I remember correctly, when we were, you know, building up to my, my most anticipated movie last year was Candyman. And I believe Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele were like in constant communication with Clive Barker, you know, just sending emails back and forth about different ideas and visuals and things like that. So, yeah, he does. He does have some great ideas. I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, I don't know what your guys opinion is of the Midnight Meat Train. Oh, I love that movie. I went to see it when it first came out. Yeah, I, I like it, too. I think it's really solid, really good. And so I don't know if Trey Jackson, you've seen Midnight Meat Train, which is based on Clive's work. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, I think I came in like a a seven or something on that. I I liked it. Um, it wasn't anything, you know, major for me, but I, I don't know if I've really disliked any of the stuff that, you know, been direct adaptations like Candyman, uh, Night Breathing and that stuff. I like all that stuff to varying Mm -hmm. degrees. So, yeah, but going back to, you know, Jackson, one thing for you to keep in mind is you're the one who wants to be the director. I mean, I, I, I don't know if it makes any sense, but if you watch Nightbreed, you know, there, there are, it has problems. I have issues with it, but David Croner, Cronenberg's look as the serial killer in it is really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's definitely. a cool I mean, mask. And that's sometimes that's all you need, right? Is that look, that iconic image. It's a matter of yep. the quality of the movie. I mean, there are so many, and I'm not going to point fingers here. There are so many like iconic uh, film, film series and everything that have started off with a movie that's good, but not great. But the fact that it has an iconic image or something you can remember kind of cements it as, as a horror classic. So, you know, I think, like I said, with, with imagery being such a strong suit for, uh, for Clive Barker, I think that's really easy for adaptations of it. So even if it's something like, and I'm going to have to check out that that hulu series because that sounds really cool but i mean even if it's just a low budget kind of anthology uh sort of situation i'm sure there are so many cool images that you could pull from that um just like directly from the pages 
Well, in this film, I, I to get back to the, like the technical aspects, there are some clunky shots. Like I said, I I rolled my eyes every time I see those darn grips behind that monster. <laughs> um, but and the special effects, you know, clunky, but it looks pretty good. The lighting and everything looks pretty good to me. What Jackson? What do you think? The rest of you guys think? I I yeah I agree. I think that what with what they had, it looks really good. Like especially the the scene. Um, you know, when, when the Cenobites are, are summoned, wherever they are, and it becomes yep. really ethereal and weird and otherworldly. Like, when we first see Frank opening the puzzle box and those lights coming up through the, the planks, like, that is such a great image and such a great way of introducing them. You know, and then there's, and this movie is known for having, you know, really cool special effects, but, you know, not my favorite shot of Frank's face kind of in different pieces and them rearranging them, but it's not, you know, that, that shot's kind of cheesy, but I, I still love that image of that, that attic with the the spindles of stuff and the chains and that's just yeah. so disturbing um but yeah so great imagery i think it looks good it, it is a little confusing like we were talking in the beginning you know about the setting it's like where is this place uh it's like home, home sweet home like in the middle of an industrial park like where is this but yeah um, <laughs> but but yeah that i place think needed that. that place needed like a reality crew to come in there to, yeah. crew to come here and clean that place well up. well here's i mean I, it <clears throat> looks cool though that's the thing it's it's, it's iconic definitely like the, that feeling and um yeah i think it's 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 hinting a little bit towards what would be like cabrini green it's not quite there um but it's definitely not your conventional like haunt it's not poltergeist it's the point which is really cool i think it's a cool setting um and uh i, I just want to say like I find it really funny that Frank's like he's got his mattress on the floor, his collection of like personal erotica. I love how that's professionally photographed. Like it's on a tripod <laughs> and like well lit. Yeah. She's flipping through these photos and they look like they were taken for like Vogue. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I'm sure Frank would pay attention to the details there. Frank uh, only went for high class, high class yes, smut. Jackson. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, as you can tell from his taste, he's very <laughs> and his statues. Um, but yeah, I I, th I also love and we touched on this like Frank's dubbing. It gets very giallo very quick. Uh, yes, with Frank's dubbing. Uh, but I love that. Like that's one of my favorite parts of the movie. It's just like his voice, that voice coming out of him, his face. I'm brother Frank. It's it's very funny to me, but. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting movie. I think if this had been higher budget, like I said, then it probably would have been less interesting, frankly. Well, before we jump into the cast and anything else you guys want to talk about, you know, are you guys excited or skeptical about the reboot coming to Hulu next month? So, Willis, what do you think of them rebooting Hellraiser? I want to see how they do this, because mm -hmm. if you read the original book... Mm -hmm. Pinhead isn't really named Pinhead. Right. It's just called the lead Cenobite. And it also says that it's not really a man. It's more of a female type of body with a high-pitched voice. Hmm. But it's not really a female. It's just androgynous. Gotcha. So I don't know if that particular... If they're gonna do an actual hell priestess, yeah, or uh, is it gonna be androgynous? Because actually, the person that's playing the hell priest in this particular Hellraiser is transgender, right? So I don't know what kind of way they're gonna do it. We just gonna have to see. I seen the top other person with mm -hmm. the pinhead makeup. 
they haven't really showed the whole body yet. So right. I don't know if it's going to just be lead Cenobite, Hell Priestess, because in the Boom Studio comic book right now, at one point, Christy Cotton actually becomes Pinhead. Really? Yep. I didn't know that. Wow. Yep. Okay, well, Trey, are you looking forward to the reboot? Yeah, I think I'm a little bit with Willis there. I always like to try to kind of go in with and wait and see kind of attitude. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have any problems with whoever they want to cast as the Cenobites because I don't necessarily think. I mean, Doug Bradley's great. Don't get me wrong on that. Yes. But I think anyone could step in and make a really good Cenobite. I think that's the the beauty of it, right? They could they could put anyone into those roles and do any various numbers of weird looking creatures and stuff. So I'm um, I'm excited. There's a new hopefully decent sized budget Hellraiser coming out because I feel like that's been kind of bottom of the barrel for them with right. the budgets they've been given and like the right. direct to video or direct to VOD stuff. So I'm a little bit excited, um, but I'm going to wait and see for it. Okay. Jackson, what about you? Any interest? I'm the same way. I, I think I'm more excited than skeptical because it does look good. I think from the stills I've seen, I don't know, is there a trailer out or we've just seen stills? I haven't so seen one. No, okay. I think they just, I have seen the publicity photos. It's like yeah. Willis said, it's almost like a headshot of the new pinhead. Yeah. And there's a, yeah, there's that. And there's, I think I saw that there's like a, a photo of a guy like touching what looks like an obelisk or a, or a puzzle box or something like mm-hmm. it looks cool. It looks good. Um, I'm, I'm excited. Definitely. I mean, I think we were both hot on the new Candyman, which was like a sort of uh, pseudo sequel reboot sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going in uh, with an open mind. I, I think it looks really cool. And uh, and yeah, I mean, it's got to be better than like Hellraiser, you know, nine, whatever those are called. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's got to be. Well, I mean, as soon as Doug Bradley exits the franchise, then, you know, you've got a problem. You know what I mean? Because it's like, then what are you watching them for? Um, but this one that got a bigger budget uh i think it's going for a more modern take so i'm i'm definitely interested yeah and let, so let's talk about get back to this i am too i'm i'm cautiously optimistic but mm. i do hope they put some money into it but the cast here in this hellraiser i think is pretty good i've always liked andrew robinson who plays larry and i guess later also plays frank you know he usually plays either like uh, a scumbag like a serial killer and dirty harry or he's just kind of the squirrely guy who's always up Sylvester Stallone's butt in Cobra. You know, he's usually playing kind of a squirrely guy, but I've always liked him and everything. I always wondered why he didn't get more parts. But, Willis, what do you think of Andrew Robinson? Well, he, he was a chump in the movie. Yeah, so, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, was, he was just whipped by Julia, but he's a great actor. I don't know why he didn't get more stuff. Yeah. But I guess he's just a basic character actor that's been around for a while. So, yeah, he played the part that he needed to play. Yep, I agree. Trey, what about you? Yeah, that's absolutely nail on the head right there. I mean, very solid performance in that role. And I think you, I mean, I think that's uh, probably harder than you think to get into that kind of character role, right? Where he's just like this, getting excited over suing Someone suing a doctor and all this. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's yeah. very much you put that against Julia and how she's, uh, you know, reacts and acts in this world. And it's like, how did these two ever get together? But I think he does a very good job in this movie. I wondered the same thing. I was like, I kept expecting him to be like, you know, talking about, you know, 
turning that house over so they can get back to their mansion and the, you know, yeah, their, and, trust and, because <laughs> their trust fund, because why else is she with this guy? This guy, yeah. is, this guy needs a, a, you know, a spinal, you know, replacement, a transfer of <laughs> plant. So I, uh, Jackson, what about you? Well, I think it's, you know, Larry's a fantastic character here. Um, but uh, yeah, played perfectly, I think, by Andrew Robinson. Uh, just a really weird, like, performance overall. Like, even when he's not Frank, you know what I mean? There's some weird line deliveries. Um, but uh, like that dinner party scene, like, am I the only one who felt like the energy in that scene was very odd? Like, the pauses between them talking yeah. was very, yes, very strange. Way. Yeah. But uh, but he's so good. He's so good in it. Um, he's just this real weird guy, afraid of blood, um, but he's willing to move into this rat-infested like <laughs> home. It's it's a very odd character, but yeah, I love. It. I mean, he's very very distinctive like character actor. Um, you really like if you need a role like this, there's only one guy you can call, and it's this guy. So like, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm I'm he's perfect for the role. Really is what I'm saying. And we have to give him credit because. One of my favorite lines in the movie, he ad-libbed. It was not in the script, which was, Jesus wept. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. great. That definitely, probably, I mean, other than anything delivered by Penhead, that's probably the most iconic line in the movie, I would say, which is just fantastic. Yeah, and he just came out, Clyde Barker's like, ah, don't, you know, F you. They said, that's, that's so, you know, rote, that's so can. And Clyde's like, what would you do? And he goes, ah, let me think about it. He's just like, when he was a kid, he was taught that's the shortest verse in the Bible. So, boom, that's what came out of him. Um, I think it works and works really well. But, man, we want to talk about evil. I'm not, I'm, I'm pretty sure Pinhead's just doing his job. But Claire Higgins as Julia. Oh, <laughs> this is, um, I don't, you know, Trey, I don't know. You have, what, two kids now? Yeah, yep, got two. Okay, either of them a boy or both girls? or Both, both girls. Both <laughs> girls, okay, yep. good. I was going to say, because if you had a little boy, one of the things you need to teach him when he's like 13, 14 is show him this movie and say, if you ever, ever, ever encounter a woman who looks like that, run. Just <laughs> run the other direction. <laughs> yeah, she just got that look kind of on her, her face most of the times, right, where she's just like... <laughs> it's pure evil. Yeah. <laughs> that woman is pure evil. And, and, you know, she doesn't even like horror movies, but... She did a great job, and because they shot so many of her stuff, I guess, early on, <laughs> somebody on the crew joked that, because who hadn't read the script but looked at Clyde Barker, because Barker was still going back and forth in the studio and what to title this movie. They didn't want The Hellbound Heart because they thought it sounded too much almost like romantic, which is weird. But he, one of the women crew members said after filming a couple scenes with Claire Higgins, he says, well, you ought to title it how far a woman will go for, for having for good sex. You know, that's <laughs> or paraphrase therein. Yeah. But I, I, you know, for what she's doing here, man, Willis, I love Claire Higgins as Julia. She's evil. Yeah, she played the role perfectly in this movie. They try to make you feel kind of sympathetic for her mm. a little bit because she got married to the wrong brother basically after the fact. Yeah. After the fact, yeah. But then you just realize that especially if you watch the second movie, she was never no good. Yeah, she's, she's great in both of them and she's never seen either one of them. She walked out after the first 10 minutes that she couldn't take it because she doesn't watch horror movies. But I... Jackson, what do you think of uh, Claire Higgins as Julia? 
Well, I think she's perfect. I mean, she's she is perfect in this movie. And uh, yeah, I can see her. I mean, there's got to be a little bit of Julia in her to play that part. So I can see her being offended by by Hellraiser. I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> not for me. Thank you. Uh, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine that. But uh, yeah, she's fantastic in this movie. Um, just a really like she's not totally depraved from the beginning but she's got that seed in her right she's she's well maybe i shouldn't say that uh she's 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 got she's got the propensity to drive a hammer into somebody's head and that's not something i think most people just have from the get-go so there you know there's some, there's something wrong with her but um yeah I, th- I think that she she plays a part perfectly a great love to hate her character um but i mean all you need to know is when when kirsty comes to the house and uh and she's like a uh what does he say he says don't do something around julia don't say something i don't remember exactly what he says but kirsty's like i'm not surprised you know just the fact that she would be offended at something it's just like yeah. yep that's that's her so uh, yeah, I I'm with you. I don't understand why they're they're together. I mean, why is Julia with Larry? Maybe she's with Larry because of Frank. She spied him in the distance, and then was like, uh. I'm gonna get with his brother. But uh, I don't know. But but and it, it goes both ways. Why is Larry with Julia? But uh, I guess because she knows how to take him to the hospital in case he cuts him cuts. His well, hand. I think it's also needs. because he's a wiener and she's hot, and so there's that. That might be. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's simple. Oh, man. But um, you bring up Ashley Lawrence as, as Kirsty. Now, I don't go typically to to cons or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but I've been told by people who do that Ashley Lawrence, who plays Kirsty, is just a sweetheart. She's just wonderful. Um, but I remember and, and this is not her fault. I think she's fine. She gives a fine performance, in my opinion, as Kirsty. But compared to Andrew Robinson and Claire Higgins, it, it, it's hard for her to kind of hold up to those two. Does that make sense, Willis, or am I off base? No, you, you're you on point because I think that's like one of her first movies or something yeah. like that. So that's the reason why she was kind of off in the movie. But yeah. then it kind of makes it feel real because it makes it feel like she's not playing a part, that she's actually doing some good acting. She's just like an awkward 18-year-old or something yeah. like that. Yeah, gotcha. All right, Trey, what do you think? How dare you, Matt? How dare you? No, <laughs> no, Ashley Lawrence. Oh, trust is... me, I know I will get, every time I say something like this, I get DMs, angry DMs. So I... <laughs> no, no, you're good. I, I, from the first time I saw this movie, I had a crush on Ashley Lawrence, so there's that. But we you're both right. I'm not blinded by this. I, she's not anything over the top or above and beyond compared to the cast, especially. Right. But, um, she does a serviceable job. I, I mean, I don't think she acted a whole ton after these couple no. movies, right? No. Mm-mm. Yeah. So, but I think she does a good enough job to move it along. Is she the strongest kind of lead pushing things around? No, not really. Yeah. Jackson, what do you think? Yeah, I'm right with you guys. I mean, it's yeah, she's she doesn't distract me too much, but definitely she's not giving, you know, like a powerhouse performance. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, she's basically just our, our you know, our our 
maybe our protagonist? I don't know. She's she's definitely our point of view character because we can only follow Julia so far, right? So I I think that uh, you know in a in a different movie we would have just followed Julia all the way, and maybe that's what Barker wanted to do. But uh, I think we do need somebody who you know we're we're gonna follow who's gonna try to save the day. So that's um that's her role, and I think she's an okay job. Um, like I, I believe her as Larry's daughter. I think they they definitely you know have that uh, enough of that bond. Um, you know, and I believe her disdain for for um, for Julia. That's that's palpable. But uh, yeah, like I'm I'm with you guys. Not uh, not the greatest performance, but but I can see her being. You know, she she gave her 100% to it. One of her first roles, and yeah, I think she I think she did a good enough job. Yeah, and you know, speaking of great jobs, I mean, we can talk about the actors who play Frank if you want, but he's not given a whole lot. I. But the iconic performance of Doug Bradley as Pinhead, I mean, that voice and just the way he carries himself, despite the fact that, you know, the stuff he was wearing was really heavy. He was spending six hours to get in makeup. He couldn't see. He kept tripping everywhere. But man, and I'd be shocked if he's in more than five minutes of total screen time in this movie. But man, I remember just being mad on this movie the first time I watched it, being blown away by Doug Bradley as, as Pinhead, who I just learned today moved from England to Pittsburgh. Lives in Pittsburgh. Wow. I know. I didn't know Doug Bradley <laughs> lived in wow. Pittsburgh. I know, man. It's like him and Tom Atkins hanging around and Tom Savini. Oh, but you got to love Pinhead, right, Willis? I mean, I know you're a Freddy guy, but Pinhead is awesome. Yeah, he was one of the greats in the first two movies until they turned him into Freddy Krueger in the third movie yeah. and had him cracking jokes and stuff. I like it when he was more serious. Yep. But then again, also with part two, all of the Cinnabites went out like a bunch of punks, which I got very pissed off about that one. Yeah, I know what you're I know what you're talking that is kind of that was kind of weird. Um Trey, how is, is Pinhead in your on your Mount Rushmore of iconic horror characters. Yeah, I, I think so almost more than some others because it's in this first movie. I think you'd be surprised, right, if you watched this for the first time and maybe knowing like everything around like Hellraiser series and the Cenobites, mm-hmm. probably be surprised how little they're in it. Yep. Um, but I think when he's there, it's an understated performance, but it's so good and it's so menacing. And I think, and I'm sure we'll get into the rest of the Cenobites later, but I think it's all just that whole their whole presence in it, they're just all so weird and unique, and I think they all do a great job with it, hardly saying anything, really. Yeah, but man, when he does, that voice, I it, uh-huh. it did not surprise me at all when I looked up Doug Bradley's IMDb and saw that he has done a ton of voiceover work over the last, you know, 20 years, especially like... I saw that he's played like Sith Lords and like three or four different Star Wars video games and stuff like that. Didn't surprise me at all because that voice is fantastic. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes total sense. Great voice. Yeah. Jackson, what about you? Oh, I'm 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 there 100 percent. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. Uh, and I, you know, I love this whole original uh, triumvirate, you know, or whatever of the, of the original Cenobites. I think that they're, you know, as we move through the series, we get introduced to more and more Cenobites, but they don't have the charm of the original of the original uh, group because they're all just so iconic. But yeah, Pinhead's definitely like he's iconic. 
for a reason. He's he's obviously the talkiest uh, Cenobite, um, but he's also like he's got such a simple design, but it's so iconic too. If they're not trying too hard, you know what I mean. It's not uh, it's it's not like the later movies, like I alluded to. They'll they'll have a guy, you know, whatever. He's got 550 hooks and he's splayed out and he's also you know got his back open or whatever. It's like they're just going crazy with it. But this is all you need really is Pinhead, and uh, yeah, just just makes sense that he's the leader of the group i think he's fantastic and yeah an, an amazing booming voice uh to deliver probably some of the most iconic lines i think in all of horror um so yeah that's that's fantastic and i can't wait to talk about uh the the cinnabites in general but i also want to say and you we kind of we we glossed over frank you know and sean chapman like you said is just okay um you know i think he has a great look to him but obviously he was dubbed but oliver smith as the monster like that that gruesome you know drippy like yep. blood monster he's fantastic like really disturbing and and a lot of devotion i think but with, why with even give him a why even give him a shirt yeah <laughs> i don't know that that's got to be the grossest image in the movie right that soaked shirt like man yeah at least give him a towel right uh, I, I don't know. I, I just, uh, but let's talk about, you brought it up, Trey brought it up. Let's talk about the Cenobites. You know, Clive Barker said he just kind of took them and Willis, you alluded to this earlier, like they're, they're the administrators of hell, right? They are, you know, they don't really have a gender. They don't have any agenda other than the box is open. We take you, we torture you. That's what we do. We're here to do a job. And, and so, but Barker apparently spent a lot of time with the, the costume designer and the art director going over like going and he was going into like punk stores in London and looking up different things to try to come up with the look. He spent a lot of time on it and I think it it shows. So yeah, you got you gotta love these Cenobites, right, Trey? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think all four and what do we have here? We've got like Pinhead. Um I think in the credits it's just like female Cenobite, yeah. chattering Cenobite and Butterball Cenobite. Right. And uh yeah, I think they're amazing. And I, I think, honestly, the the female Cenobite's almost the most menacing to me. She's just, she freaks me out every time, man. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, when yeah. she's coming up the stairs and she's yeah. uh, slicing the wall, the look on her face. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. I'd run. <laughs> yeah, I think they did such a good job with what they had on the Cenobites, at least. Maybe you can yeah. talk about some of the other effects and that later, but I the, think the other effects suck, but the Cinnabites yeah. are great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Willis, what about you? What do you think of the Cinnabites? Those are the highlight of the movie as mm -hmm. much as, as little bit as they are in the movie. Cause we only see them like in the middle for a couple of minutes. And then the chase at the end, basically that's about it. So they don't overstay their welcome. It's enough to, keep you curious of what are they who are they um it it has a mystery to it which like after a while they ruin it because yeah. they show them too much and they make them a little bit too much the center of the story and in the later ones they really ruin them but the first two they uh, in the movie enough to be important and impactful and they don't overstay their welcome like certain other people even though i'm a freddy krueger fan them last two movies it's just too much and it's irritating and it's so corny because me yeah. and my daughter went through and watched them and she like freddy ain't even scary he he's just too jokey 
Yep. He becomes a clown, and he's not that way in the first, especially first two films. Right. And so that's a shame. But I, yeah, I agree with you. I think you can show too much, too much talking to like, you know, part three where, you know, you've got Pinhead in the middle of a club in the middle of a New York City rave. I mean, oh, come on. You know, that's you're getting ridiculous. And yeah. we don't we don't need that. We just need a little bit of the Cenobites and they need to be all about their business and scary. And that's it. We don't you know, we don't need them going to clubs or going to space or any of that kind of crap. Um, Jackson, I know you have a band, but please tell me you're not going to dress like this on stage. I, I can promise you that. Yeah, I think that would be that. It's not very functional. Um, I'll say that much. But uh, and I, you were saying, you know, that Clyde Barker would go into punk stores. I think he was going into other places to look at the fashion. Well, and no, right. punk stores <laughs> because I was like, man, yeah. I don't think the Sex Pistols look like this. This is something different. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I whatever floats his boat. But anyway, <laughs> um, no, I love the Cenobites. I love that. I just don't like the other special effects and i know yeah, i'm going I, to get messages about that too yeah. but everything from what we've talked about the the you know the fire demon that that looks like something out of spirit of halloween to you know the 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 well, i don't know what that big thing is chasing kirsty down the hallway i have no idea what that it's even the, uh, it's the engineer right isn't that what they call it the engineer well, do they, did they need that though don't you just need to sit up to show yeah. up when the box opens i i don't know see that's you know the yeah, i think that's a valid point that the other you know special effects aren't as good as the costume and makeup design of the the cinemites but you know i love that stop motion resurrection scene of frank you know with the nerves and the brain forming back i think that's great um, and I, you know, so I, I think there are good special effects other than that. And, you know, except for the, the, the grips, like that we talked about, talk to death, um, you know, that, I think the engineer's design is still cool, especially in the scene with, uh, Kirsty, like in the hospital, like that's cool, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, but did we they definitely do, do anything other than show a close up of like his face. No, they, they definitely overextended themselves. Like they were, and I'm sure it looked great in 87. Like even, even if you, you know, I mean, if you disregard the, the, the blunders there, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think it's, you know, it's, it's an impressive thing. And, and the Cenobites, just to, you know, talk about them for a second, um, you know, Willis touched on this. It's like a lot of the mystique left the Cenobites as the movies went on. And I think that was a big mistake because I think yep. a reason that they work so well, and I won't get into spoilers for the, the rest of the movies because we're just, you know, spoiling this one. But um, they definitely, I think, over-explain the Cenobites and, uh, and tell us too much. And I think it's like, you know, I hate to, you know, keep talking about other horror authors, but like a Lovecraft, with Lovecraft, you know, it's, it's sort of that same way where Cthulhu wasn't the point of the story. He wasn't the center of the story, right? It's always like he's looming in the background and then he'll make an appearance, right? That's, that's how the Cenobites should be, right? This like looming threat in the background that you know about. And when they make an appearance, it really has that punch. And as the movies went on, we got Hell World and yeah, uh, Hell yeah. on Earth. And, you know, it just keeps on going. Uh, it's, it's like they lose a lot of the mystique. They lose a lot of the scariness, the scary factor to them. Because as we see them more and more, they just become, people in leather you know what i mean they don't they're they no. stop being these supernatural entities so yeah definitely i think a missed opportunity with that i wanted to, to ask everybody uh, i think I, i've already kind of gauged a little bit but um out of the, these first four cinnabites and maybe even disregarding pinhead i want to know what everybody's favorite uh cinnabite is maybe out of those three i know trey you said that you were most intimidated by the female cinnabite which great name by the way credits like good yeah. job <laughs> um but uh, you know i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna start it off i'm gonna say my favorite was butterball because i, I just love it. butterball I <laughs> 
he's a cool guy. I just like the way he looks. And uh, yeah, I think I, he's got cool goggles on. Like, yeah, I, I think if I had to be a Cenobite and listen, that's a fate I wouldn't wish on anybody. But if I had to be a Cenobite, uh, you know, Butterball, he seems like he's got it all figured out. I'm sure he eats Oreos and just kind of chills, sits on the couch when he's not, you know, ripping people to shreds. So I, I think I want to be Butterball. Okay, well, you know, if there's diabetes in hell, then uh, be careful. <laughs> um, I know you guys jump in. I'm I'm still for Pinhead, though. I'm I'm with you, Trey. That the female Cenobite is scary. I always liked the. I always thought the Chatterer was a cool concept. Yeah. As a Cenobite, I always thought that was a very cool design for the first one. I don't like the fact in the second one that he gets a face change near the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's, two's not perfect. It, you know, it, it kind of gets worse as it goes along. But now nah, I'm sticking with Pinhead Jackson. I'm sorry, but I. <laughs> okay. What else? Do you, You'll be Jackson? boring then. I well, I'll be boring. I hey, we each cool. had to choose one, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, I one other thing before we just throw it open to anything else before we wrap up. I really, Jackson, you're the musician. I don't know about Trey, you or Willis, whether or not you guys are musicians, but uh, Jackson always notes this. I liked the score. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is I mean, this is a great score. Like right from the beginning, we get that 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 uh, that that main theme and it's so good. I mean, I I would argue that this and Candyman are some of the best like horror movie scores of any of any movies. And they both have this like. I think it's it's right from the source material, right? This like really weird gothic supernatural thing kind of lends to that classical because it's very classical and very, uh, very you know it seems like it would just be this this classical piece of music, but it's, there's also something perverse and kind of dissonant to it. So I think it it perfectly encapsulates like the, the tone of the story and both this and Candyman that the, the like elegance that also oh, a little the Candyman disturbing. score is incredible, yeah, but definitely. I, yeah, yeah, but th I thought this is good because I know Barker's been asked this six million times about the original soundtrack that Coyle did, the industrial yeah, band. Yeah, I heard about Coyle, that. That's but I actually think I'm kind of the, the – it was the studio who overruled that. Yeah. Here's the one time I think the studio got it right. I think the score is really good. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I mean it's like it would have been interesting to have that maybe as a DVD extra to have the electronic soundtrack. Um, but I mean, and as much as I love like Nine Inch Nails, I've watched movies from like the the late '80s and '90s that have those electronic soundtracks. Yeah, and they're usually they usually don't hold up very well. I mean, like I I love Nine Inch Nails, but when you're in the middle of like a, a scary theme where somebody's wandering through like a haunted mansion and it's just it doesn't like, sound right. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't fit. So I think no. it was the right call by the studio. And honestly. This movie, like a lot of the choices the studio made, this is one of the rare times where I think studio notes actually help the movie. Because, I mean, even slashing the budget, honestly, like I think that was this and moving it, uh, maybe not moving it to, to, to America, but I think a lot of their notes were, uh, were helpful to the movie. Uh, because I think if Barker had just been, you know, let go, then, you know, and given, given free reign and a blank check, this movie could have been very different and maybe not as good as it is now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it, it did really well with its, with its budget to, and the score too. I mean, with this being kind of a last minute thing to, to replace the score that was done for it, I think it's really fantastic. I don't know. Willis, Trey, what do you guys think? I feel like the score is very, it fits the movie, but I like the score in the second movie better. Oh, it is. 
it sounds more established with the characters and stuff. To me, I remember the score to the second movie more than I do the first movie. Hmm. Interesting. Trey, what about you? Yeah, um, I did really like going back to this score. I noticed a couple of moments in it, and there was there's one scene. I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if I picked up on this in the past, but there's a scene where we're in that kind of industrial yard, and it's a wide shot of uh, Kirsty kind of walking. I think there's a really cool scene or a cool song that goes along with that. And I think that kind of encapsulates like it's like Jackson saying you've got two ways to do a score at that time, right? And I think if you do it one way, it kind of gives you that feeling. You know, there's late 80s, early 90s films that all kind of have that same feel to them. And I think that score kind of wraps this into them, you know, whether or not the film is a little crazier than some of those other contemporaries. But, um, yeah, I really liked it. I like their direction they went with it. Yeah, a lot of that stuff from the 80s that I grew up with, with there was just a. Uh, some guy with a Yamaha DX7 synthesizer <laughs> and, a, and a drum machine doesn't hold up well. Did not no. age well. Oh, well. well. What else do we want to talk about? Let me throw this up. Jackson, what other notes do you have on Hellraiser? Well, first, I just want to say, you know, addressing what Willis said, I also agree that the, the Hellraiser 2 soundtrack is good. I think it's, it's it's the same kind of thing like Halloween 2. I think, you know, everybody loves Halloween, but Halloween 2, I think, has the superior soundtrack, especially with that main theme. It's like the same melody, but it's got more, you know, it's it's bigger and more bombastic. And I think that's it's sort of a similar situation with Hellraiser 2. But um, yeah, and I, I love that that kind of, by the way, I just want to comment. I love that that like tiny sense idea just a guy sitting in a room i mean that's how john carpenter did the original halloween just him yeah. sitting with the piano uh drinking coke his stuff holds up but a lot of the other Definitely. stuff by like jan hammer and all all that kind of stuff from the 80s does not hold up but his yeah his it's stuff like, it's it's novel well, it but has it's more of a scary. darker feeling to it sure sure yeah, yeah. so yeah I, I definitely that's that's something to think about but um yeah i i don't know it's um i i was thinking about this like you know, we're talking about uh, like studio notes and stuff like uh, if this had been more accurate to the the short story, would it have been better? I'm not even talking about, you know, Frank and hell, because in the original story and correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't looked at the plot synopsis or anything, but I'm pretty sure it ends not with a, a skeletal angel thing dragon thing uh but with you know kirsty with the box um and then that would maybe set up what willis is talking about in the comics with with kirsty becoming like a cinnabite um you know th i think that would have been maybe more interesting than this weird cinematic ending with the the dragon so the, you know that's something to, to think about um but again i'm, I'm afraid that if it had been more of a, a close adaptation you know it wouldn't be as it's a, it, first of all it wouldn't be its own thing but also we would have you know kind of it would have gone over its budget so that's something to think about uh but the last thing i want to i want to talk about is i read roger ebert's review yes. of hellraiser uh -oh. Uh -oh. I, oh boy. Yeah, I know. I knew one of us was going to bring it up eventually, but calling it, uh, saying that it had a, a bankruptcy of imagination, which is so wild because I feel like as far as 1987 or like, you know, just late 80s horror movies go, Hellraiser was like, it was the only kind of movie with imagination. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. uh, compared to a lot of the stuff that was coming out. And I'm, I mean, I've already said that 1987 was a great year. I mean, we got Predator the same year, but um, a lot of like the, the lower budget stuff like this was really not imaginative. So I don't know what Roger Ebert was, was on really. Um, but I mean, how can you watch Halloween and love it and have the right, you know, the right opinion about that, but not like Hellraiser. And I'm not saying Hellraiser and Halloween are of the same quality, but you know what I mean? 
Um, I mean, if anything, Roger Ebert should have waited until like Hellraiser four to to start talking about a bankruptcy of imagination. But um, yeah, that's 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 pretty much all I got. Uh, I, and I will say also, you know, if if we can find some way to to release the the coil electronic cut, I'm sure that uh, that like yeah, the, you can find the soundtrack that. out there. But to find what you're talking about, yeah, that that'd probably be tough to find. But yeah, I think it would be good if they did it. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. What else do we want to talk about here? Willis, what do you what else do you have? Only other thing I gotta say about Hellraiser is they have a great documentary online about the movie. Okay. Series. I think it's on Shudder or something like that. You can find it. It's long though. It's very long. It's about two or three hours. Really? So it's yep. one of those like, you know, never sleep again type documentaries? Yeah, it goes into everything. It goes into the production, the music, and all kind of stuff. Uh, I will check that out though. One time, when next time I have a, I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm gonna check that out. Um, Trey, what about you? What else you got, bub? Yeah, for, well, first off, Willis, thank you for that because as a guy who like goes to sleep to in search of darkness over and over again, <laughs> I'll be well, checking that one out for sure. Um, the only other scene I kind of wanted to talk about was with um, it's at the pet store and it's when that home, the homeless guy we had talked about yep. earlier comes in and is, has the, you know, it's the bug scene, the eating the bugs and all that stuff. And uh, that, that kind of creeped me out. I kind of forget about that scene when I'm watching this movie, uh, when I go to watch this movie again. And yeah, um, the Barker's definitely got a thing for bugs, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. So, no, that was the only other thing I wanted to mention. I thought that was a cool little uh, gross-out type scene. All right. Well, gentlemen, let's let's rate and, and give our recommendations on this. So, on a scale of 1 to 10, and would you say rent it, buy it, stream it? Uh, Trey, what say you? Yeah, so um, I absolutely can get behind your gripes, Matt, is with the special effects and stuff. Um, yeah. As someone who has been watching kaiju movies nonstop and likes, um, you know, 80s uh, Indonesian and Indian films, you, right. <laughs> I've seen a lot worse, but that's no excuse. Um, but this was kind of almost like a break compared to some of those with the level of yeah. at least the Cenobites. But um, to get back on track, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be the highest on this one. I am very high on Hellraiser. Um, when I was going back and watching this through, with movies like, um, you know, Deep Red and uh, From Beyond and mm-hmm. Reanimator and all that stuff when I was just marathoning these things. This one always kind of stuck out and it kind of gives me, um, it's weird to call this a comfort movie, but <laughs> it almost is something I like and enjoy going back to. So I've always liked this one. It's not a perfect movie. There are flaws everywhere and I'm probably a little yeah. bit high on it, but I do come in around a 9.5 on this. Oh, wow. All right. So I guess you're saying tell people to buy it. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And I own the arrow of Hellraiser one and two, and that's a really good set for both of those. I've heard that. I've heard that. Willis, what about you? Where are you coming in? I get a movie, a nine. I think it's just an excellent horror movie, mm-hmm. an excellent start of a series. And the movies are so easy to find. Back in the day, you could find the, mm-hmm. all the movies in the $5 bin at the Walmart, yep. that, that cheap DVD set with all of them for like $5. So it's easy to get that. I think that's what I got. I got one at the Anchor Bay or something like that because the movie been released about 
15 different companies already yeah. over the last 20 years. Yep, you're right. Jackson, you're usually the toughest among us, so where are you coming in at? Well, look, I mean, I, I love this movie. I really do. Um, looking at it from an objective lens, there are lots of problems, but I'm going to come in at an 8 out of 10. Um, this is one that, you know, it's it's been high for me in the past. It's been like uh, like a top 10 movie. It's definitely in my top 10 in 1987. But, uh, yeah, it's an 8 out of 10 for me. I think, you know, just the fact that it is a, an adaptation by its author and it's got such a, a imaginative world, I think that that saves it from maybe some of the, the aspects that don't hold up as much. Um, but, yeah, definitely, definitely a great. And I would say buy it um, or watch it with Joe Bob. Yeah, Joe Bob loves this movie. And, well, like father, like son, I give it an 8 out of 10. All right. Um, I call it a buy. I own the Shout Factory Blu-rays for one and two. And I think at the end of the day, with all my complaints, I think the strengths outweigh the weaknesses to the point where this is definitely something you want to own and watch and, and rewatch. Just, you know, maybe, you know, go get yourself another glass of water while the grips are pushing the monster down the hallway. But, uh, <laughs> so I want to thank all of our supporters at Patreon, and you can become one for as little as $2.50 a month. All money goes to help Jackson through film school. You can be on the show, suggest movies or themes, get bonus episodes, and vote in our annual horror Oscars. And you can find more of us over on Twitter and Instagram, at Father Son Horror. And we have a closed Facebook group as well. Trey, where can they find you, sir? Yeah, so I, um, first of all, Willis, it was great to be on here with you. Like Matt, I had introduced to you from HMP, um, so it's great to finally talk to you on here. I'm so glad to be on today. It made my whole, whole weekend Oh, that's awesome, man. Good deal. <laughs> um, but I host a, a History of Horror Movies podcast called Screaming Through the Ages. Uh, right now, doing a little episode series on kaiju movies. Um, as we move into October, I'll have something hopefully pretty cool going on. Uh, but you can, I've got a Facebook group just like Father and Son over here on Twitter at Screaming Ages. And I'm also on a podcast that just started with Nathan Bartlebaugh and Dave mm -hmm. Becker, uh, where we talk about physical media stuff and physical media releases. And that's all genres. And that is the Phantom Video Podcast, which you can find it where the Phantom Galaxy is right now, at least. One of the dozen different podcasts under the podcast, <laughs> the Phantom Galaxy. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Oh, man. No, I've been listening. I listened to that last episode. It was great. So, Willis, where can they find you online? You can find me at my Twitter page, Wildman Willis Reviews, my Nasty Will DC. And you can check my YouTube page, Wildman Willis Reviews. And you can check me on the NFW podcast as well. That's the, my main podcast I've been on for the last couple of years. We just bull crap during watching <laughs> crappy movies. And that's it. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Jackson, where can they find you online? First of all, I want to say, uh, much like much like Trey, I was it, this was a great episode. Happy to have Trey and and Willis on. Um, but and and Trey, I just got to say, everybody should go vote for your kaiju polls right now to to determine the ultimate uh, the ultimate winner. Um, it's it's been pretty heated so far. It seems like we've got. It seems like Twitter and Facebook have have separate minds about who the oh, best yeah, kaiju on is. Very different pages, and I appreciate that. We're coming we're coming up on the uh, getting closer to the end there. So I appreciate that, Jackson. Yes, I'm I'm still you. You know, I'm still rooting for Destoroya, you know, that he's my man. Um, but uh, I can only support him so much, you know. I, I, I go on Twitter and Facebook, though. Don't tell anybody. Uh, um, <laughs> but uh, but I, I do both. Um, but 
But yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Kane underscore Hero12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero12. Uh, yeah, on the on the uh, you can find my letterbox and YouTube from there, and on the Patreon, I'm, I'm almost done editing a bonus review or a uh, a podcast that's going to go on there soon, and uh, you know I've got Amy Swan trying to talk me into doing a bonus review of a movie that not a lot of people like, and Dad, I know you don't like, and we mm-hmm. talked about it on our Lost Boys episode. Uh, but she's trying to talk me into doing a review of that. So we'll see uh, what happens. Uh, okay. I'm not making any promises here, but that might be fun. So uh, yeah, well, that's, that's it for me. Good deal. I'm also on Twitter as Pastor Matt R. Thanks for listening. Gentlemen, thank both of you for being on. Uh, awesome. Jackson and I, it's been, it's been great having you both and I hope you'll both come back at some point. And we haven't decided if we will have another episode before we uh, get to Halloween or not. It just depends on Jackson and my school schedule. He's doing college. I'm doing a Ph.D. So we're trying to we'll try to sneak in another episode before we hit the Halloween season when we'll be covering both Halloween three season of the witch and Halloween ends. Right, Jackson? Yeah, but I think it'll be Darcy's Darcy, the male girl's favorite double feature. Yep. So, all right. So, but Jackson and I will be talking. We'll see if we can't squeeze in at least maybe another episode, Jackson, you think, before Halloween? Yeah, we can do it. Definitely. Okay. Well, Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye, and remember to never, under any circumstances, ever watch Hellraiser 8 Hellworld, because that really is a waste of good suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, remember the family that watches horror together slays together. See you, folks. Once again, I want to give a big thank you and shout out to our Patreon supporters. Trey Whetstone, who is on this episode, hostess grooming through the ages, an absolutely fantastic guy. Stefan Sitter, Ryan Bratton, Pearl and Greg Morgan from Land of the Creeps, Nick Stumpf, Kevin Corby, Joel Robertson from Retro Movie Geek, Ian West, Ian Urza, Greg Russell, Greg Bench, hey Greg, Dave Becker, Dave Dr. Shock Becker, uh, although I might have dead named him there. I don't know. I don't know if he likes to be called Dr. Shock in person. Uh, Dan George, Chad Stice, Carl Davis, Brian Scott. Hey, Brian. Billy D, Ashley Pinker, Barely Ashley, what's up? Andred, and Amy Swan, of course. Amy Swan, our biggest fan. Uh, thank you guys so much for your support. I appreciate it. It means the world to me. Uh, and you make this podcast possible. It's 2.39. That was the time when you started setting the time. It's 20 minutes later now. The power. The facility. Jesus wept. Stop saying Jesus wept.